0: Morning, guys. Yeah, Reagan got me a great gift this morning. It was fantastic. Actually, it was very good. So, happy Father's Day, fathers. And uh, thanks for joining us uh, today. We're in Matthew chapter 5, as Cain just read. And uh, we're in this series uh, called Exceedingly Righteous, where we're contrasting the righteousness of the Pharisees with the uh, greater righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. And we're going um, off of Jesus' words that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, said a different way. He came so that we might properly understand and interpret the Old Testament. And so we've been seeing these phrases, you've heard, but I say. Jesus says, you heard one thing, and it's not antithesis what he says next, but it's deeper. He says, let me expound upon it. Let me tell you what I really meant when I said that. Nothing was more awkward in my childhood than when a Victoria's Secret commercial came on TV. I did not know what to do. Am I supposed to watch it? Am I supposed to change the channel? Am I supposed to hide in shame? Am I supposed to leave the room? Am I supposed to bring up something awkward? What am I supposed to do when I have the remotes and a Victoria's Secret commercial comes up on TV? I remember the first time my pastor said sexy in a sermon. I was um, like 12, and I thought the walls were going to implode, the ground was going to open up, and we were all going to fall into the abyss in the middle of church. Maybe you grew up in a hyper-conservative church environment and um, the, babe, or the, the, the stork brought the baby and um, sex was never discussed. It was never brought up. It was never a topic of conversation. It was ignored like it didn't happen. Or uh, if you also grew up in that environment, then uh, perhaps the word itself is dirty to you. You hear it and you... Kind of cringe. That shouldn't be talked about in church, right? Well, Jesus talked about it quite frequently, actually. In fact, um, even the most progressive of people, uh, not just in this room, but in other environments, even some of the most progressive of people, I think, would blush if the original Hebrew intent of Song of Solomon's was read to them. I mean, there's some pretty. Fifty Shades of Grey type stuff in there. So this morning, we're going to talk about sex. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. When was this said? Well, in the Ten Commandments. This is number seven uh, for us Protestants. You shall not commit adultery, and that's a good thing. You shall not commit adultery. And of course, what that commandment meant in the time when it was said was if you're a married individual, you shouldn't sleep with another person. You should uh, reserve that for marriage. You shall not commit adultery. Now Jesus shows up on uh, on the scene and he says, yes, that's true. You shall not commit adultery, but let me take it further than that. See, the righteousness of the Pharisees is I didn't sleep with him or I didn't sleep with her. I didn't commit adultery, so I'm okay. And Jesus shows up and he says, The righteousness for the believer, the righteousness under the gospel is deeper, it's better, it's greater. And then he goes into how it is all of those things. And we'll see that in here. Now, when Jesus is saying this, you shall not commit adultery, what he is also doing is affirming the biblical understanding of sex, which is very simple, man, woman, marriage. It's the only biblical understanding of godly sex, man, woman, marriage anything else outside of that, and I could list them extensively, is unbiblical, ungodly sex. Everything outside of man-woman marriage is, according to the biblical standards, sin and a rejection of God's creation. Man-woman marriage. And Jesus is affirming that. Now, religion takes sex too far one way and says it's dirty, it's bad, it's just for procreation. Stay away. Don't talk about it. Progressivism takes it the opposite way. Even Christians sometimes do this. Well, I'm covered by grace, so it's okay. So what is the gospel perspective on sex? What's the biblical perspective on sex? It's obviously not that it's dirty and bad. God made it. It's not the other extreme. Well, I'm under grace, so I can do whatever I want. Doesn't God just love everybody? It's okay. What is it? See, in the world, the opposite of the sex is dirty and stay away is, you know, sex is whatever. Do whatever that you want. In the world's perspective of sex, let's just walk it out. How is sex used? How is sex used in our world? It's for pleasure, it's self-gratifying, it's selfish. And in many ways, sex is a consumer good like anything else. We trade it. I'll give you sex, you give me a relationship. The relationship's about to break down or break apart, and so what happens? Well, let's just start having sex because then it'll keep it together. Sex becomes this consumer good. It's performance-driven. It's used to, uh, uh, to tie somebody to you. And what happens with any consumer good? <laughs> when you're done with it, what do you do? You go find another consumer good you go find a better outlet for it. Or if what you're paying, okay, and paying might be a commitment, paying might be staying in the relationship, paying might be you're nice to that person for a couple of weeks, whatever it might be, whatever you're paying to receive what it is that you want, as soon as you don't want to pay that price anymore, then you just cut off the relationship and you move on to the next one. And this is how sex is used in the world. It's just a consumer good. It's something that is used for selfish purposes. And many of us can probably tell stories of how this has led to heartache or um, heartbreak, to feeling used, or a variety of different things. What's the biblical understanding of sex? The biblical understanding of sex is that sex is always connected to marriage, because marriage is about oneness. because marriage is about oneness in full, in full. Imagine this scenario. You open up your Snapchat, Instagram. Let's go with Instagram because I don't understand Snapchat. Let's go with Instagram. You open up, you have a PM, I think that's what it's called, a private message. And it says somebody in there that says, hey, you want to um, Netflix and chill tonight. Okay, if you don't know what that means, I don't either, but it's a thing. So you get that, and then you show up, and you connect, and you hang out with this person. And when they get there, they say, listen, I really want to go um, you know, far with you. And they get into this conversation. That's probably not how it's said nowadays, okay? But the end result is this. Hey, do you want to start sharing bank accounts? You'd look at them and be like, what are you talking about? I would never share a bank account with you. That's a level of oneness that I'm completely uncomfortable with. But if it was your body, sure. Sure. Isn't it amazing how we, we would never share our financial oneness with somebody, but in our modern culture, it's perfectly safe and okay to share your heart and your body with somebody. See, the biblical understanding of sex is that it is always connected to oneness, full oneness, complete integrity. Oneness, legally, it's called marriage. It's a covenant. And the marriage... Covenants, by the way, this word covenant means both legal and love. It's when those two things come together. There's a legal side to it, there's a love side to it, or a promise side, a relational side to it. Oneness legally, oneness financially, oneness in companionship, oneness in intimacy, and oneness in body. It's all encompassing oneness. Anything less than that is a lack of integrity in oneness, and it's cheap. It's, I'll give you some oneness, but not full oneness. I'll give you a bit, but not all. Now, the biblical understanding of sex, when we really look into it, is so much higher than anything the world can offer. It's so, much, it's so much better. Why? Because what the scripture is teaching is this. Sex, then, is not just a consumer good that we trade back and forth. It actually becomes, Tim Keller says, it's a sacrament. It's a sacrament. In marriage, what it is, what sex is then, instead of it being performance-driven, instead of it is, um, is, is, is this good enough, instead of this, what it is, is it's an offering. But it's an offering to your spouse in the context of complete security and freedom of the covenant, which means it's void of all of the heart struggle and all of the mental anguish outside of the covenant. Inside the covenant, sex is not about performance. It's not that it can't be, but it's not about that. It's not about the self or the individual. It's not about, am I pleasing you in such a way where you're going to stick with me? It's already decided that we're staying together. The pressure falls. I think so too then does the heartache. sex becomes a gift offered to a spouse. But then what does the enemy want to do? He wants to destroy the gift. And so he will do whatever he can to destroy it. So Moses comes down and he says, don't commit adultery. Don't sleep with somebody outside. Now, that's a good commandment. We should follow that. It's important. Even understanding the context of it, it wasn't just for preserving the marital bed. Okay, It was also for um, actually um, uh, um, in, ensuring security for women. Part of you shall not commit adultery, uh, and you realize when you get to the next line that he's talking specifically to men, is gentlemen, you don't get to discard her when you want in a culture where you have all the authority. You don't just get to throw her to the side and go for a younger model. And so in part what Moses was doing, what God was doing is he was standing up for women in this commandment by saying, yeah, you don't just get to do what you want, gentlemen. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. It's true. Don't do that. But Jesus says this, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, here's our key words, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, ladies, you'll just have to fill in the blanks, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with him in his heart. Obviously goes both ways. What is lustful intent? I mean, that's the key to this passage. What does lustful intent mean? It's interesting, the words lustful intent here are actually, the the word lustful is a word that's more typically used to describe money and idols than sex in the Bible. Typically, that's what that word is used for. In other words, if you were going like to hyphenate this word, you would say, whoever has greed, I, greedy, idolatry view of sex, a greedy, idolatry view of sex, and then intends to use that in some way outside of their marital bed, has already committed adultery with that person in their heart. This is the righteousness of Jesus that is so much uh, greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees because what it doesn't allow us to do is to remain single and say, well, I didn't sleep with anybody, so I'm okay. And it doesn't allow us to be a married person and say, well, I never actually slept with them, so it's okay. What it does is it makes us, like all of these passages do, look into the heart. It says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, with a greedy, idolatrous view of sex has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's what this passage means. It means that you can be single and commit adultery in this context. It means that as a single person, if you've elevated sex to a place where you would sacrifice anything for it. I have a friend who tells me, I do everything I do in life in order to get sex on the other side of it. He says, everything I do, the job I pick, uh, the people I hang out with, all I do, it's all in some way a puzzle. And at the end of it, it's supposed to lead to sex. With someone. Doesn't matter who. (laughs) Just pick up someone along the way. Now, that's the non-Christian, right? But even the Christian, even the Christian, single, can commit adultery in this way. When sex is elevated to a place where you begin to believe in your heart, I'm incomplete without this. My life will be good when I can. Life will start when I'm able to. Or you feel inferior because you're not. Or you're driven by it. In this way, sex has become an idol, a greedy, idolatrous view of sex, just like Jesus talked about. In this way, sex becomes this thing. It's heaven when my life has it. It'll be hell until I get it. And this way, it's not just, well, I didn't sleep with them. It's, or it did anything with anyone. You may have never touched anybody. And Jesus says, but do you worship it? Is it driving you? Are you chasing it above all things? Okay, let's not just pick on the single people. We'll get back, by the way, on what we need to solve all this stuff. What else is lustful intent? Well, statistics will say that over 50% of churchgoers are viewing pornography at least once a year. So pornography and masturbation, which, by the way, if sex is all about oneness with another person, <laughs> and then obviously pornography and masturbation don't fall into the category of oneness with another person. Even secular psychologists now will talk about the damaging effects of pornography how it decreases sexual and marital satisfaction, how it destroys intimacy with future spouses, how it perverts the mind. Psychologists now also have um, begun to understood that we actually carry shame in our brains, like a weight. That actions that we would typically associate with shame actually begin to cling to our brains, like a weight that we carry. Pornography. And masturbation, a a gross misapplication of a gift of God. And what a trick by the enemy. What a trick by the enemy that that, 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 that God would create something good, right, and beautiful, and that it would be abused by an individual who thinks that's what they want or deserve in life, and the very thing that they then chase destroys their ability to enjoy the gift that God had for them later. What a ploy by the enemy. And statistics would say over 50% in the church are viewing regularly. So let's not pretend. Let's not pretend. Lustful intent, though. In some ways, I think porn and masturbation has become the new committed adultery. There's like a sexual checklist. Right? Well, I didn't sleep with them, and I don't look at, um, you know, I don't watch stuff online, right? But here's what most of us probably know one, there might just be enough up here that you don't even need to watch something. Or let's take it a, deep, a level deeper Sex, uh, lustful intent is any time you are driven relationally by an underlying sexual desire that you're not addressing. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It means you're a married person. I'm particularly talking to married people or um, single people who are dealing with a married person. Okay? Not necessarily two single people. um, Though you single people still need to listen to the intent of the heart. This is when a married person makes decisions based on an underlying sexual desire that they're maybe not even admitting to themselves. Like, um, why do you respond to that person's email and not that one? Why do you text that person back and not that one? Why are you and that team at work and not that one? And if you're honest with yourself, it's because you're sexually attracted to them. And you're now actually making decisions based upon a sexual desire that is actually destroying oneness with your spouse. That's why you text that person. That's why you email that person. That's why you Facebook that person. That's why you're nicer to that person. And you might play it off with, well, it's just the way that work has to be. Why is it? Do you have to text that much? Do you have to meet one-on-one? Do you have to talk that much? Or do you crave it? Is it actually satisfying a hole in your life? And you're going to that for an underlying satisfaction. This is lustful intent. This violates the marital covenant just like viewing porn, just like sleeping with somebody else. Do you see how deep the gospel is? It doesn't let us just stop at our actions. It just keeps going down and it makes us ask, why? Why? Are you really engaging with that person? Are you really having that meeting? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with him or her in his heart. Okay, so now we've probably adequately defined lustful intent. What do we do now about that? (laughs) Well, look at Jesus' actions. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. If you've ever seen Minority Report, that's a gruesome process. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. I'll talk about the implications of this. There's two things that I think Jesus is trying to do here. The first is he is saying this. Sexual temptation is strong, and in order to fight it, there has to be an equal and opposite strong reaction to it. He would say, tear it off, cut it off, get rid of whatever it is that you got to do. And so, whatever it is that is leading you down that path, you're going to have to have a strong reaction against it. I had a friend in college who uh, he would say, whenever he was tempted to view pornography, he would, um, there's a Bible verse that says, flee from sexual temptation, right? And um, by the way, that word flee is like run for your life. And so whenever he was tempted sexually um, like to view something online, he would literally go for a (laughs) run. He was like running from his computer. Why? Because it takes an equal and opposite reaction. A strong, Jesus, I mean, uh, some people have rightly called this radical amputation. That there has to be a strong reaction to the sexual temptation and the urge. But why? Why? Here's the other thing Jesus is doing in here. This is what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to take care of the... Uh, he, he's trying to teach a principle of, of what is small and what is big. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, cut out the eye, the small thing, in order to preserve the big, the rest of you. He's saying, if you don't, because here's what happens. And here's what happens with sexual temptation. And, 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 and in this, what is small grows into what is big. No one thinks the text message will lead to an affair. Nobody thinks that the first time they stare too long as a teenager will lead to 10 years of pornography addiction. Nobody thinks that the first time we a couple cross the line that it's going to lead to, well, we said we were going to wait, but now we don't. He's saying this, the small will always, this is the nature of sin, by the way, and particularly the nature of sexual sin. It always wants to grow. And so he's saying, deal with the small so that you don't ruin the big. Said another way, he's saying this, don't exchange the small for the big. Let me explain that. In the moment you send the text message to the person that you shouldn't have sent it to, it's a very small thing. It's a very small thing, right? And then you get into it, and then you know, four weeks or four months down the road, there's a, a textual affair that's going on. And in the moment, it seems big. It seems big to you. It seems important. It seems life-giving. It seems fulfilling. And then when do you realize it's small? When your spouse finds out and you have to tell them. And in a moment, you see your life being ripped away from you. In a moment, you see all the trust that you built up with that person gone. You see the possibility of divorce on the table. You see your kids Staying at a different place than where you are. And what you did in that moment when you sent that text is you started a process of exchanging something so small. Because I promise you, in the moment when you're faced with all of that, you're going to look back at that little textual relationship and those little texts and those little things that you said as so small. And you're going to say, why did I exchange what was so big, what was so great, my family, my marriage these years, for something so small? And we could give countless other examples. Student, single person. What is small is that one night. What is big is the relationship you're going to have one day with a future spouse and the oneness that you're going to have with that one person. What is small is anything and everything you view online. And what is big is the intimacy that you're to have with your spouse. And Jesus is saying, don't exchange the small or the big for the small. So what do you do? You deal with it when it's still small. That's what you do. He's saying, deal with it right at the beginning. Here's what never happens. The opposite happens all the time. Happened this week, in fact. God always has a way of doing that. I had a friend outside of Toledo text me. I don't think my marriage is going to make it. My wife found this on the computer. Right? That conversation happens all the time. You know what conversation rarely happens? I'm slightly dissatisfied in my marriage and it's making me think about texting somebody. That conversation never happens. And Jesus is saying, deal with it here, when it's still small, before your life has been driven into hell. And the hell here actually, is um, the word that Jesus uses for hell here, it does have eternal implications, but many theologians would say that it's actually more earthly than heavenly in this particular case. That what he's actually talking about is not your eternal salvation, but your life is going to feel like hell. So if you don't deal with it here and you let it progress I mean, Lindsay and I talk about this all the time. I say to her, or we talk whenever this topic comes up, and I, and I will say this to all of you in front of me. Everything I did, from holding hands to anything else, prior to meeting Lindsay, I look back and say, I wish I wouldn't have. There's not a single interaction that I had with a member of the opposite sex in a physical engagement prior to my wife that I look back and say, I'm glad I did that. Not one. One. And I can't look back now and see how any of that produced anything good in my life. In fact, I can point back and say how it produced hell. And I think many of us could as well. And so Jesus is saying, deal with it here. Dating couple, deal with it after you break the boundary for the first time. That's why you set the boundary back here. Deal with it when it's still small, so your life does not get drug into hell. So that's Jesus' response to this issue. That's what he that's that's how he tells us how to deal with it. But of course we're just looking at three verses, so let's give a greater context because I think we need a greater context for this. Because I think even in this, Jesus is preaching the gospel. Even in this, I think what Jesus is teaching is sin is so powerful that there has to be a radical offering or a radical gift in order to deal with it. He's saying something small has to be sacrificed to preserve something greater. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus knew that sin would drag all of us into hell. And so what did he do? He didn't offer an eye. He didn't offer an arm, a hand. He offered his life. He offered his life. Jesus offered his life as, in essence, something small for something greater. What? The kingdom with us. Salvation for us. He offers himself. Why? So we don't get drugged into hell. Now, Jesus doesn't operate with lustful intent because Jesus never operates selfishly. And lustful intent is always mirrored with with um, with selfishness. But what does Jesus do? Uh, he gives us a picture of a greater marriage, a greater intimacy with Him, a oneness with Him, a oneness with Him that is not a consumer good, a relationship with God that is not a consumer thing. It's not a performance driven thing. It's not a am I am I good enough for you, Lord? But a relationship with Him that is a commitment, a covenant. A salvation, a relationship with him that gives us great safety and great security, that gives us great love because we know it's not about what I do, it's about what he did for me. This is the gospel. It's the only thing that stops our whole lives from being dragged into hell. But then what do we do after that? It starts there. Of course, Jesus teaches us radical amputation here. He teaches us if you're addicted to porn, you should probably set up some boundaries and put some software in your computer. Yeah, that's what he's teaching here. Okay, he's telling you to take action. He's telling you if your um, flirtatious relationship with that coworker or that acquaintance is progressing too far, then stop. So you have to change jobs. It's better than an affair. So so you're um, in your relationship and you have had the conversation 37 times about how you're going to stay pure next time and you don't. Get married, make a plan for it, or break up, or put in some new boundaries. He's saying, take action. Take action. Do something. But those of us who have struggled with this, which is probably many of us, know this too. Our heart has a natural tendency to fly by barriers and boundaries. And so we do need something else. We need something else. The first, two things. First is we have to remember who we are in Christ. We have to, particularly in this issue. Like the song we just sang, we have to remember who God says that we are. First, it means this. Whatever's happened up to this point in your life cannot be changed, but also will not define you. And if Christ does not define you by sexual sin, then nor should anyone in his church. And anyone who would does not deserve a place in your life. And it reveals a lack of their understanding of grace more so than your past sin. Grace covers you. There is no condemnation. You are not defined by a sexual past. That is not the gospel. And anyone who would hold that over you doesn't understand it. So you must wash yourself anew in grace over and over, over and over, over and over. And then you must and you have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in this. Because eventually your flesh will want to fight against every boundary that you put up. And ultimately, no boundary will stop you. They're good. Do them. They're good. But ultimately, only a change from here will matter. And so you pray as you understand his grace for the power of his Holy Spirit to come and to change you. To change you single, single to not worship intimacy and marriage and sex, but to worship Jesus. To change you, porn addict, to not find power and control and worth in that, but in him. To give you self-control with your wandering eye, your wandering text, or your wandering conversation. And to stop it while it's still small. Lastly, there are those of us who have to take action. Action in this way. Repentance and seeking forgiveness. Because there's currently something going on that ought not to be. The good thing is I don't even have to list them out because the Holy Spirit will tell you right now. And so where that is true, let's just say this. Wherever you're at right now will still be smaller than where it will be if you don't deal with it now. So whatever practical consequences there are will be the lowest now than they will be in the future if it keeps progressing. Deal with it now deal with it now. I think that's what Christ would call us to do in this. And I think he would have us, I think he would have us see him on the cross showing you how much, uh, and I almost hate saying the words, but how much lustful intent he had for you. How much love, how he was willing when, when the world says sacrifice anything for sex, how Christ was willing to sacrifice anything for you. When the world says worship sex, Christ was saying, worship me.